Sure is good to see everyone this morning, whether you're here with us in the room or you're with us online. I'm just glad we're together, and I'm looking forward to jumping in to God's Word. If you are with us online, make sure you say hey to your host. We'd love to know that you're with us, get to know you a little bit if you're ready for that. And so uh, welcome in that regard, and your host would love to hear from you. As Amy said in the video, we are wrapping up our series called Truly Blessed. We've been looking over the last couple of months at the proclamations of Jesus at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount in which he is describing what a truly blessed life looks like. And what we've been learning is that Jesus' definition of a blessed life may not be exactly what we were expecting, but it's been so, so good to dive in deeply to each of those phrases, each of those proclamations that he made. And here to read to us the eighth and final beatitude from various biblical translations is Gabe Rentfro. He is a freshman at Mount Vernon High School. Give it up for Gabe. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, comforted by inner peace and God's love are those who are persecuted for doing that which is morally right. For theirs the kingdom of heaven, both now and forever. God blesses those people who are treated badly for doing right. They belong to the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who have suffered persecution for the cause of goodness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. They are blessed who are persecuted for doing good, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessings on people who are persecuted because of God's way. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. God makes happy those who have trouble for doing what is right. The kingdom of heaven is for them. Awesome. Thank you, Gabe. Appreciate that, man. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we have learned so much from the last seven Beatitudes so far, but I got to tell you, this last one, it wrecks me. So far, we've learned uh, great things from Jesus, and I can then participate in that. I can choose by the Spirit's help to be humble or to show mercy. I can, by His indwelling power, I can find myself craving to do what is just and what is right. I can make choices that make for peace. We've learned so much so far. But man, this one, this last blessing pushes me to ask some deep, searching questions. So let's dive right in and begin to unpack these powerful words. Jesus begins, blessed are those who are those? And can we be among those? Who are we talking about here? Is he talking about, could he be talking about you and me? I have to admit, my first uh, thought when I read this beatitude is, that's, that's not me. I, I don't know if I, if I qualify for that beatitude, but we know from how we've spent the last couple months that when we hear Jesus describe this life, our proper response is to say, yes, I want that to be me. I want to live this life my Lord is describing. And so, like I said, this one's especially challenging, but let's, let's really begin to unpack this. What are we talking about here? 
In each of these Beatitudes, Jesus has shown us the kind of people we can be in Him. But this one, this is talking about the external reactions of others to the internal realities and the fruit of those internal realities in my own life. So let's look at how we can become the kind of people about whom this has any chance of being true. Let's just go ahead and kind of remind ourselves of how this works here real quick. The world that we live in, not unlike the world that Jesus lived in and that the original hearers of this sermon lived in, the world, as the Bible uses that phrase, can be simply described as society ignoring God. So the world we live in is, is all of us, before we said yes to Jesus, and anyone who has yet to say yes to Jesus, doing life on their own terms. And then you put all those folks together and all of us together as a society. The world is society ignoring God, doing things from a purely human perspective. The Bible will call that the world. And on the whole, the world is going one way. And we, as followers of Jesus, are simply going another way, His way. And not just another way, many times an opposite way. And sometimes opposite means opposition. We go against the flow of this world. We escape the pull of other people's opinions. Now, our goal as Jesus followers is not to try to be abnormal. Although some of you got that down cold, right? <laughs> right, you know, elbow your neighbor if you're like, he's talking about you, right? Some, um, our goal is not to be abnormal. Our goal is only to follow Jesus, right? Which then at times will guarantee that we don't fit in. Let's think about those early Christians for a minute or two. When Rome was at the height of its glory and power, there appeared within that empire this disturbing sect called Christians. This is an era in which every meal began with a libation and a prayer to pagan gods, right? And, of course, they had a whole uh, collection of so-called lower-G pagan gods. We learned about them in high school, right, and in uh, mythology and such. They had all kinds of that. If you had an invitation to dinner, chances are good that invitation would be to dine at the table of, in celebration of some pagan god. They'd name their parties after these gods, right? This was just baked into social life. On top of that, human sexuality was not submitted to God as we understand Him, but formed by an anything-goes mentality, much like today. This was a period in which human life was cheap, but Christians put a high value on human beings, from embryos to infants to the elderly. Every race and color and creed, Christians saw inherent value in every human being made in the image of God. Amen? This went against the flow of culture. Christians were simply those who seemed to find themselves refusing to go along. They saw things differently. They were seen as antisocial at best, or rebelling against Caesar far more often. These Christians refused to be absorbed into the godless society of Rome. They had not heard the rule that we hear today, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? And eventually, the Roman Empire decided to try to stamp out Christianity as a disturber of unity and peace. All were to bow to Caesar, say Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord. 
All had to conform to pagan custom. All had to behave like true Romans. But Christians found themselves as nonconformists, and they were threatened with death. And many chose that very thing. Now, you and I don't live in that reality right now. Not like that. Not like that. But this beatitude challenges me, and maybe you too. Should Christians today be any different in what they're prepared to face or in their mindset of being unafraid to be different from the world? I think we know the answer is we shouldn't be. The early Christians were ostracized, criticized, maligned, gossiped about, slandered, and of course, hunted, tortured, and killed on a regular basis during those first centuries of the church. This is what it meant to say yes to Jesus. It wasn't a decision anyone made lightly. Now, you and I, we have to admit, we know little to nothing of this in our own day-to-day. And in a way, we suffer for our lack of suffering in Jesus' name. I don't say that to make light of anyone's suffering, but to make a, a real point, our allegiance to Jesus often costs us little. And while you and I don't try to pick fights or manufacture persecution, right? Let me say that one more time. You and I are not out to pick fights in this world or to manufacture persecution. Just amen, that's right. We do worship the Lord God. We don't worship what this world considers important. We do make our first priority Jesus and his way, not ourselves and our own way, right? We don't bow to what this world might cater to. We don't adore what this world is so crazy about. We simply find ourselves living by a different set of standards and ethics and priorities. And that will end up making us distinctive from the world who is doing life so far without God, right? It just stands to reason that we will find ourselves gravitating away from greed and self-centeredness and exclusionism and violence and lust and duplicity and the things that define the world doing life without God. But we don't, do this, we don't discover or live out this separation in some kind of self-righteous way, right? That look, how, look how together we are, look how we've got it all figured out. Not at all. We are simply people who have discovered how good and wise God is. Amen? And we've just started to walk in his way. I just had a conversation a few minutes ago with someone who's thinking about getting baptized uh, here in a few weeks. And we talked about, he, he said, hey, I, I'm a sinner. You know, I got this, I got this going on. I, I know that God's probably not pleased with that. And I said, join the club, dude. Right? The whole idea, though, is when we say yes to Jesus, what we're recognizing is that very thing is separating me from God. Me deciding that I want to do things my own way and make up my own rules and my own definitions, that's the, that doesn't serve me very well in the end. That is real sin. It's not a list of behaviors that we learned in Sunday school not to do. Sin always starts with just our own thought that I can do this without God. I'm going to make this up. I know better. And then all kinds of stuff, dysfunctional things can flow from that in my life or in yours. But the idea is recognizing I need forgiven of that. Doing life on my own terms isn't working. I need a teacher. As this gentleman said, I need guidance in my life. Doing it, and he confessed that, doing it on my own just isn't really making any sense. 
That's what saying yes to Jesus means. I need forgiven. I need and require and hunger for that grace so I can have a relationship with the God who made me. And now I've decided I'm going to learn how to follow his way. I'll spend the rest of my life learning that, right? I don't have it all figured out and I won't get it all perfect, but I've decided his way is better than my way. In fact, it's the best way. And I'll spend the rest of my life learning that. That is what it means to walk in the way of Christ, and it's different from the way of the world. And so there's an inevitable contrast, if not always conflict. Becoming the kind of people about whom this beatitude has any chance of being true begins with a dedication to simply follow Jesus, not ourselves, and certainly not the world. This old trope still has some bite. Maybe you used to hear people ask this. If it were illegal to be a Christian... Would there be enough evidence to convict me? Those, that's the those that we want to be. Amen? Blessed are those, Jesus says, who are persecuted. There's an organization called Open Doors. It tracks the persecution of Christians around the world. And as of right now, today, in this year, they say that one in eight Christians worldwide experiences high levels of persecution simply because of their belief in Jesus Christ. This map highlights the nations in which that is true. In some of these nations, it's illegal to own a Bible or to share your faith in Christ or to teach your children about Jesus. Those who boldly follow Christ in spite of government edict or social opposition, they can face harassment, arrest, torture, and yes, even death. This is true for one in eight Christians around the world. Now, we don't face what they face. Not right now, not yet. Maybe we don't know. Maybe not ever in our lifetimes. We simply don't know what the future holds. But this fact should stop us for a moment. And when you pair that with what we're hearing Jesus say, we realize that seven out of eight of us aren't experiencing the level of persecution that threatens our well-being or our lives the way these brothers and sisters do. And so this reminds us to pray for them. And what else can we do? We can stand with them by keeping to that same thin pathway that Jesus said only a few find and keep going against the flow of that broad road of this world. We can, in other words, we can justify, we can, we can verify, we can um, approve of by what we can stand with. Those who are making that choice and it costs them a lot, we can at least keep making those same choices even if it doesn't cost us so much right now. We can be with them in that. Now, Jesus says in the very next breath after this beatitude, blessed are you when people, and he unpacks what this persecution can look like, insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. He says this to kind of begin to unpack this last beatitude. His sermon is getting off uh, and running here, and he, he says this next, Jesus also said elsewhere, woe to you when all people speak well of you. So that's kind of the opposite. In other words, if everyone has nothing but good things to say about you, maybe you need to pause and realize, hey, what's going on there? Paul told, to Timothy, uh, told Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Jesus is helping us see what this persecution can look like. It's not just arrest or torture or death. It's criticism. It's insult. It's slander. Those things also are included under that umbrella term of persecution. And when we read that, part of us might be like, oh man, I don't like that at all. 
right? Uh, the idea that I might be insulted or misunderstood or slandered, lied about, gossiped about, that really begins to grab something uh, inside us. It can drive us nuts if someone misunderstands us or gets the wrong idea about us or, God forbid, doesn't like us, right? We've all maybe experienced that. What others think of us can become too important to us. Now, eventually, I feel like the Lord teaches us that we'll never control other people's opinions, right? That's a valuable lesson to learn. We have to be ourselves in Christ and strive to be who and do what God leads us to be and to do. And to do that winsomely and joyfully, not being bogged down or pulled back by what other people might think or say. But that is not always easy. As much as we love people, we don't live our lives based on what they think, right? Maybe that's a lesson that we learn with age, but I can tell you, the sooner we learn it, the better. Why is this important? Because check this out. If you and I live for the acceptance of others, and it can be easy to fall, fall into that, we will then find fatal the rejection of others, right? That will hurt so deeply that it'll feel just like a death wound, right? If someone rejects us. And then if that's the case, we will do whatever is necessary to avoid that naturally because we've made it so important to us because it's going to hurt us so deeply. And when, when that happens, we have handed over the power of our lives to the opinions of others. And when we, do, when we find ourselves there and we'll do whatever is necessary to avoid it, that means when it comes to our faith, we will find ourselves potentially hiding our faith or hedging our identity with Christ because we just find so wounding and fatal the idea that someone might misunderstand us or flat out reject or malign us. This is the way Peter put it to his readers. Even if you should suffer for what is doing right, you are blessed. Here he is echoing his Lord in this beatitude, quoting from the Old Testament, do not fear their threats, don't be frightened. He says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. He says you need to cut those ties that pull you based on other people's opinions and you end up making decisions based on whatever you think others might think of you. That's a torturous place to be. Now, if we're going to talk about persecution, I think it probably bears saying uh, in our context today, persecution is, is not disagreement. If someone disagrees with one of your personal policy points or your political views or, or even aspects of your theology or faith, simple disagreement does not equal persecution. Got really quiet in here. The last two years have seen people expressing moral outrage and exhibiting their own versions of moral courage regarding whatever they felt was an important issue and then their take on these issues. Debating, defying, declaring, and taking the heat for their positions. Whatever our positions, the question this beatitude begs us to ask is whether we're willing to do that same level of defying and declaring and heat-taking for Jesus. It's convicting to me. Again, we're not those who are picking fights or seeking to have a martyr complex. We don't seek persecution. We seek God, and then sometimes persecution of various forms, insults, hardships, or even outright violence can come to believers here or around the world. What I ask myself as I read this beatitude is, am I willing to take 
the heat? And then the corollary question is this. If my faith isn't generating much friction in this world, there's not much heat for me to face, why not? Why not? We ask ourselves this question. If I am perfectly at home in a godless culture, then what does that say about the culture of my heart? Blessed are those, Jesus says, who are persecuted. Why? And now he begins to unpack this in ways that will be helpful to us. Because of righteousness. And in a little bit, in a little minute here, he'll say, because of me, to kind of refine that point. The hatred and the violence that was aimed, once aimed at him, now falls on his followers. And Jesus told his disciples what to expect. He never held any, any information back. At one point in John 16, he even tells them, look, people are going to think they're doing a service to God by killing you. He didn't ever uh, hide what they were about to face. In John 15, he says to his disciples, including you and me today, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. In other words, you're not going to fit in. There's going to be plenty of friction, sometimes even hatred toward me and my way and thus toward you, my followers. Now, hate can sound pretty rough. Maybe you've experienced it, maybe you haven't, but it can be a reality. And Jesus also uncovers something here that's true of all of us in our human nature. We all want to belong. And he says, saying yes to me means you don't really belong to this world any longer. I don't know about you, but I remember when I was a teenager, uh, I heard a lot about peer pressure, right? I was always being warned about peer pressure and how you should avoid that. And don't go with the crowd. If everyone jumped off a bridge, were you going to do it too, right? You ever had those talks with your parents or whatever? And I heard that all the time from all kinds of angles in school and at home and at church to avoid peer pressure. But what I found even as an adult is that peer pressure doesn't really go away, does it? We all still have some innate desire to fit in or to go with the flow or to even be found popular. I think it's kind of wired into our fallen human nature. And when you and I say yes to Jesus, we are in one sense essentially saying to this world, I'm not impressed and I don't need you. I don't need to belong there. I don't need to play by those rules. I don't need to chase what you all chase. And sometimes the response from the world is vehement because it's rejected. And it's, we've, we've, we've taken the score and realized that Jesus' way is far more attractive, fruitful, fulfilling, wise, healthy, than any other way. Amen? In fact, baked into the word church in the original language is this idea that we are an assembly of people called out, assembled together from the larger group to a separate group. Now, that doesn't mean the preferred ones, doesn't mean people who are the ones who are most loved by God, it simply means those who've accepted the invitation. They've heard a call, and then they've followed that call. So they leave a crowd behind as they assemble together under this banner of the Lord Jesus. And it's from that posture that then we live in this world too often deaf to such truth. Jesus says we're blessed if we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for my sake, he says. Not for the sake of being a jerk, right? Or boneheaded and foolish, right? If we're taking some heat because we're making dumb choices or being rude to other people, don't bring Jesus into that, okay? All right? You know, he might be like, hey, that's on you, buddy. I, you can take heat for my name, but don't take heat for just being a jerk. And sometimes we can maybe think that we're taking persecution because we're just doing our own thing 
and trying to say that Jesus approves. This is who Jesus said we are to be. Very, just a couple of verses after this beatitude, he says, to the, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Here he is helping us see what kind of people we, will, we are to be in this world. This is really helpful for us. If I only look at that beatitude, I'm just going to kind of be at, at a loss because I'm thinking I can't control whether or not I'm getting opposition or I don't, it turns into some kind of really backwards way of, of looking at it as if we're only blessed if we can generate heat, uh, the heat of persecution. But no, Jesus then just a couple of breaths later begins to unpack, no, here, here's who you are. You're light in darkness and you're salt. And this salt thing is a really super cool metaphor because salt in Jesus' day was both valuable and common. I mean, everyone needed it, but it was also very precious because it preserved food. And of course, just like it does today, it made food flavorful, brought out the flavor of food. So everyone wanted salt, everyone needed salt. And salt was not always easy to find, so it was a precious thing. And he says, that's who you are in this world. I want to sprinkle you throughout the whole planet. In fact, I want you to flavor what it means to live on this planet because I'm introducing a new way of doing things into the world. I'm showing people how to love. I'm showing people how to live a life that's healthy and whole. And as you move out into the world and be, be yourself, you will flavor and, yes, in a very real way, preserve this world, helping it rise from what it has been. You're the light of the world. Jesus is a little lamp, so to speak, and handed it to us. He's lit us in our hearts. We are to illuminate the world. And he says, not hide it. Not hide that light. See, I want a faith, I bet you're a lot like me. I want a faith that's hard to miss. When I, I'm inspired by what Jesus says here about being light of the world, soul of the earth, about, about letting that light shine. I want a faith that's hard to miss. I'm getting the impression that's the way it's supposed to work. Then I'm convicted. What does it mean that my faith seems to be so easy to ignore? What does it mean that this world sees us as Christians and drives right by? Not interested, not impressed. In fact, sometimes, many times judged, hurt, kept at a distance. I want nothing of that, they may say. And sometimes for reasons I have no trouble understanding. I want a faith that's hard to miss, but not one that's easy to ignore. Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the Beatitudes in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And at one point he says, the fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified. The last Beatitude, the one we're looking at today, is addressed directly to the disciples, for only they can understand it. Only those who've said yes to Jesus and taken up his cross to follow him can begin to understand what it means to take this heat of insult and hardship in the name of Christ. The man who wrote this was a pastor who was imprisoned and then hanged for his opposition to Hitler and the Nazi regime. Man, I want that to be true of me, of us people who are crucified to any need for acceptance or popularity or even security and safety, but who are willing, even if right now the world's circumstances don't draw that ultimate sacrifice from us, who are willing to stand true on that ground that Jesus is the Lord of our lives. Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This rounds off the promise by actually quoting the same promise from the first beatitude. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. 
For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You stand in a long line, he says. You take the heat from me, you're standing in a long line of people who've stood that same ground. And it's a blessed place to be. As American Christians, we've lived with the self-assured, if sometimes self-deceived feeling that our society should basically agree with us. That's long gone. And perhaps for the best. Because a faith without some friction is a faith without heat. And then often without light. Our rebellion means rejection and opposition, but both bring their own blessing, we're reading here. The Apostle Peter, again, put it perfectly, and I have little I can add to it as I'm about about to wrap up here. So let me quote uh, a little bit at length something he said to his readers. He heard this beatitude that we're talking about today, and now he's writing a letter to Christians who are suffering this kind of heat and persecution. Here's what he says, Dear friends, Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if some strange thing were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you are insulted, he says, because you bear the name of Christ, you'll be blessed. Here he is, again, echoing Jesus for the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder or stealing or making trouble or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God, he says, for the privilege of being called by His name. Friends, perhaps most of us don't suffer much as Christians. Criticism, maybe, not crucifixion. Mockery, not murder. But whatever we suffer, if it is endured for the name of and in the, in the, as we walk in the way of Jesus Christ, we are on a most blessed path. Amen? And we praise God that we bear that name. His name. No one can take it away from us. And we get to wear it for eternity. Amy Carmichael was a lifelong missionary to India, deeply committed to the cause of of Christ. And I've always been inspired. I want to close with these lines from a poem she wrote. They've always moved me, and they're perfectly appropriate to what we're talking about now. She's writing as if Jesus were speaking to us. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? Let's pray together. Lord, we do want to follow you. And we are picking up the message here, Jesus, that that can mean wounds and scars. That can mean heat and friction. That can mean inconvenience at the very least or criticism. And Lord, we just want to be found faithful. You see us in our situation today, each of us. You see how we are navigating our lives, how we want to follow you. Lord, help us not to cave or to cater to the opinions of others, but instead, Lord, to stay faithful and true to you, whatever that looks like for each of us. Lord, we can't do that without you. But thank you, God, that you were were never without you, that you're with us, empowering us, guiding us, setting an example for us. Let us consider you, Lord, what you've done for us, what you sacrificed on your cross as we take up our own. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.